Repeat after me. I love failing. Now, if you just made a face at my voice, you are totally normal. Feeling is not something competitive people love, at least not until you realize how powerful it is. That's what today's guests talk about when they share how they coach the mental game. And I mean coach the mental game, not just talking about it in a huddle for five minutes before practice, not just telling your girls to relax and focus after mistakes. I'm talking about on-the-field, actionable training, and you're going to love what today's guests have to say. We're joined by Ramapo head coach Bridget Quimpo and her assistant Ashley O'Byrne-Stever. Between Coach Quimpo's extensive knowledge and experience coaching the mental game and Ashley's skills as a licensed counselor and experience being coached by Quimpo, they have built a consistently competitive program. Now, you know, I'm all about taking action. So if you get through this episode and love what these coaches have shared, which I think you will, and you want to start coaching the mental game more with your team, we've got you. Just head to mentalsweetspot.com slash fail forward for a drill and activity bundle that you can plug into your practice plans right away. All right, now on to the show. Get your head in the game, coach. You're about to get your audio dose of softball inspiration. I'm Melanie Rushing. And I'm Alicia Smith. And we help softball teams win more games and have more fun. Right now, you're joining thousands of passionate coaches across the nation who are dragging the field, prepping for the day, or driving to that other job while they learn and grow as a coach. So if you're ready to learn how to build a strong team culture, get your players to believe, and make a real difference in their lives, you're in the right place. This is the Mental Sweet Spot Podcast. We'll just jump right in. So I appreciate you both coming. The, the cool story is, is that Coach Ashley actually reached out to, to us about one of our um, podcast exercises that we had done. And we were start, we started to talk and she's like, yeah, I listen to the podcast all the time. And I learned a lot of the mental game from my, my, from my coach who I know coach with. So Bridget, uh, if you could talk a little bit about first your journey as a player and a coach, and then we'll ask Ashley how she kind of learned from you in, in her journey as well. Yeah, so um, I went to the University of South Carolina at Aiken, um, and during that time, this was back in 1998, and dating myself, 1998, um, uh, to, and then I graduated in 2001, um, and back then, we didn't have anything on the mental game, so, you know, and I, I realized how much the, the mental game has such an impact on the game of softball, but that was something that wasn't even talked about back then. So um, when I went three for three the day before, I had the expectation that I was going to go three for three the next day. And it's, it's an expectation because I said, okay, well, if I could do it the day before, then I should be able to do it the next day. And so that mentality and that mindset was not you know, obviously I did not know that this game was a game of failure. I did not know at the time. And so it wasn't until I think around 2003, I uh, attended this, um, this convention at, um, and I heard Ken Revisa speak. Um, and he, I heard him speak. And the first time I heard him speak, I said, where the heck has he been all my life? Because I had no idea that softball was a game of failure. And so um, you know, playing the game one pitch at a time. And I realized when I, at that same convention, I was such a nerd, but I loved just sitting in the front row and listening to these guys speech speak because I didn't even know that this even existed, that softball school was actually out there. And I was so excited. And Mike Candrea mentioned, um, and I remember this, he said, you know, you want to make sure that your, your, your players, everything is covered from every facet of the game. So before the game starts, before your very first game of the season, you want to cover everything down. And for me, I said, um, 
I took it to another level of the mental side of it as well. And so I realized so much more that the mental game, they say the game is 90% mental. And if you say the, nine, the game is 90% mental, well, then what percent of the game are you actually spending on it, right? So we're really big and we put that into play with what we're doing now. So back when I first started, it wasn't really talked about. And now that it is, it's something that I really think it's, it's been so productive for our team and our program. We have similar stories. I had the exact, exact same thing as a player, exact same thing. I had zero idea how to recover from failure. And if I messed up, I was done for the day. And sometimes even for more than one day. And I, my aha moment was the sports psychology class I took. And I was like, same idea. I was like, wait a minute, uh, this is missing in my coaching. I never learned this as a player. So how can I help? So Ashley, tell us about some of the things, maybe kind of your journey as a player. And then when you met, met coach Bridget. Yeah. So I was uh, an, a player under um, Coach Quimpo from 2009 to 2013 at um, New Jersey City University. And then when I went there, I also had no idea about the mental game. I think in high school, the team that I was on really kind of just brought good players in um, talent wise and nothing was really even spoken about outside of that. Um, so development wasn't really spoken about mental game absolutely wasn't spoken about right you just you just won games so um when i came to njcu and heard coach quimbo talking about all the uh, all the mental elements of the game it kind of like blew my mind and i was like okay like there are so many other things developmental wise <laughs> that aren't physical that i'm now learning at this institution and it like set the rest of my life kind of into place. So um, after I graduated NJCU, I went to Springfield College. Um, I got my master's in athletic counseling, which is basically just another form of sports psychology with more of a counseling background. Um, and I also did my clinical mental health counseling um, degree as well. So I am a licensed associate counselor in the state of New, New Jersey. I just don't use it. Um, and then when I came back from Springfield, I now coach under um, Coach Quimpo and get to use my degree that I got from Springfield, but also that I always say I got from Coach Quimpo as well. So um, it was just funny. The things that I was talking about in a graduate classroom were things that Coach Quimpo had already talked to us about at NJCU. So. And has probably been implementing and refining over her career, right? Yeah. 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 And it's so funny. Cause I'll walk into like practice and she's talking about the same things that we would talk about back in like 2010. She's just found such a better way of saying it now that gets through to the girls in a different way because she's had to learn how to talk differently to generations that have come after me. So she does a really good job with that too. Those are really interesting concepts because Myself as well. I've been coaching for 23 years and I lose track. So, so in twenties, right. So like a lot, many different generations and it, it's not even like you think of a generation being like 10 years. It's not, it's just the kids change in these short bursts or amount of time, even five years ago. So coach Quimpo talk a little bit about uh, kind of two questions there. One, how have you adjusted your language to the generations and the differences and how have you continued to grow and with that, and two, how, how have you really worked on developing that language into your own so you can communicate to your players? I 
think the biggest thing um, with growth as a coach is just continuing to listen and learn from your players. And it's always trying to fill their needs um, as student athletes. And, you know, so I worked at New Jersey City University, like Ashley had mentioned, um, you know, and just knowing where their backgrounds are from, where they are from is really important. So once you understand um, their background, it helps you have an idea of, of how you can approach each player. So um, I like at New Jersey City University, we had a lot of players that were coming from single uh, family homes. You know, you had players that were um, that struggled with just life in and of itself. So I knew that the game of softball was not even about the game of softball. It was more about life and how they can handle life after they graduate college and how they can deal with the adversities and the difficulties of life, especially with what they are given in their current situation in life. Right. And then you take it to Ramapo, where a lot of our players are a little bit more on the privileged side. They have both families at home, they have a good, um, you know, th their families are structured where, you know, they have the support from their family. So you understand that you're now dealing with a different demographic type of student athlete. And so that's one thing that I have changed, but it's also just at the end of the day, getting to know your players. And so one of the things that we do is, um, we have, we, I think it's really important for coaches to have is just build those relationships with them and those one-on-one -on -one conversations with them and, and getting to know them, their families. And so once you get to know them, now you know how they can respond. And another thing that we, we do as coaches is we expect the same out of our coaching staff with our players. It's all about team awareness, right? So um, we have what's called, um, you know, how do you want to hold your teammates accountable day? We also have, um, you know, within those questions, the players are actually learning about themselves, but the team is also learning about how to handle them as well, how to handle conflict and how to handle, um, um, you know, any kind of adversity that they are dealing with. How do they handle a bad day at school and, you know, things like that. So um, your second question, what was your second question? How have you, uh, because one of the things that coach Ashley mentioned was just, you do a really good job of being able to communicate mental skills and mental training, uh, in a way that makes sense to the kids. So maybe either provide an example or, or how do you feel you communicate that well? Um, so we actually redefine or we define what we're, ex we're expecting from our players. So one example of that, it, we actually did, it, uh, this past week during our virtual practices, um, it's called championship mindset flashlight focus. Um, and so, you know, so many coaches will say focus, right. Or work hard or hustle. Right. And so those are, you know, th that definition is very different for every single player, every single coach. So I remember, I, I remember I used to say focus to my players and they're looking at me like, yeah, coach, I am focused. Right. So I had to figure a way to teach our players how to actually focus and what that actually defined it as. So uh, our flashlight focus, we actually did this activity last week, but it's basically, uh, if you take a flashlight, right? And the closer you have the flashlight, that means the closer it is in terms of focus, right? So you're, you're super locked in, that's your most focused. So we call that uh, flashlight focus level number one. Then as you move back, the focus level gets a little bit more broad, right? So that's called uh, level two, right? And then level three, it goes even more to level four. We get it all the way down to six. So we talk about, so flashlight focus 
is actually teaching our players and defining to our players what we're defining as what focus is, what our expectations are of what focus is. So for example, level one is, um, it's really like the most locked in, uh, it's a three, two count bases loaded, that feeling in that moment of uh, even just each pitch is, is a locked in moment, right? And so um, the, second comp the, the, the second level would be maybe in between pitches. So we're talking about this as a team. So they're actually coming up with their different levels of focus, right? And so level, you have, so you have level two, which is not as intense as level one, but it, it's a little bit more on the more intense side. So it's in between pitches, maybe you're on deck, um, and then we get to level three. So it's maybe your dynamic warm-up, right? Or maybe it's in between innings. So they're actually defining this for us. And so you get to level four, which is maybe the bus ride to a game, um, you know, in between games, it's, you know, we play double headers in, in our, in, uh, at, the at the NCAA level. So we'll play double headers. And so they, we want them to maybe be at a level four, um, in between games, right? And then level five is more of your uncontrollable, um, maybe your distractions, maybe you had a bad day at school, you know, um, and these are things, so that's level five. And then level six is absolutely unacceptable to talk about, whether it's you're talking about your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you're talking about what you wanna do tonight, what are your plans for the night? So we define to our team what level of focus they should be at and then how that, that establishes how you can lock in. And so we have players that can go from level maybe five immediately to level one. Um, those are your players that are maybe a little bit more on the joking side. Maybe they're the ones that are, you know, they, they, they don't come to practice so seriously. Whereas our more serious players or maybe our 4.0 students, they like to be at level three and stay at level three during practice and then down to two and to level one. So, um, Flashlight focus is really the goal of it is to get our players to be one at the same place at the same time. So they're all present. And then the second one is which team can lock in more often than the other. So um, that's kind of so what, when we define flashlight focus, it's one of those things where they're able to know um, even when a player gets to level six our players can hold them accountable and say, hey, I need you here, let's snap out of it. We need you at level four. So now they know now what that level um, is. So that's one of the activities that we actually utilize um, during our season. And it's been really productive. Our freshmen this year, um, they didn't even know that this even existed. So uh, for them to realize and say, wow, okay, this is not acceptable, or maybe this is acceptable. Now they know how to lock in a little bit more. And it's interesting because our players, some of them, if they're not focused at practice, um, the, the, the best lock-in they'll ever be is level three. And that means they're not going to be able to produce for our program. Right. So um, these are, these are, I guess that that's just one activity that in terms of like definition and getting our players to, to be on the same page as us, that's one of the ways. And that's one activity that we utilize every single year. I love how it's tailored. Right. And I love how you give, you give the opportunity for the kids to really define their own level as opposed to just saying this is the level and that's for the same level for everyone right and and i think that that's really important when you're when you're talking with more than two girls right just everyone's going to be different and i and i could tell already like you can tell how you just developed the relationship with all of them but you said it earlier you listen 
And I think if you really take the time to develop that relationship and anyone who's listened to this podcast or knows me personally, that is like the definition of me as a coach is I build relationships with my players. And I think that everyone does it differently. And for you to be able to take the time to, to listen and to really be able to tailor your exercises to and give uh, flexibility to the girls, I think is really, really, that's awesome. It's really important, I think. And it's, yeah. it's, it's being able to understand each player and they're different, you know, and it's so funny because when we get into conversation, um, one of our shortstops, uh, this was a couple of years ago, but she would crack a joke to her teammate to the right, who was like super serious. And so she cracked a joke at her and this is in between pitches. And she looked at her like with this mean look, but it wasn't a mean look. It was just her being serious. And and in this conversation, she was like, oh, my God, I just thought that you were being so mean to me. But she realized that, oh, my goodness, she's my teammate and she needs that for her own way to be able to perform. And so it turns into dialogue. It turns into them actually having the discussion and they end up taking over the discussion. So it's, it's really cool to see that because if you understand each player, you have your players that need to laugh, that need to smile, that if they strike out, maybe they need to smile and that that will be better for them. But you have other players that don't smile and they need that as well. And so if you can understand. Um, and so one of the things that we did was we um, introduced, I don't know, you know, a lot of people don't know maybe in this podcast, but we changed it to even other sports and we put um, Manny Pacquiao in the boxing world. If you go, if you know Manny Pacquiao, he's a little bit when he, when he enters the building and he's entering the fight, he's smiling, he's waving to the audience, and he's like super happy. And I showed my team. I said he's at a level three right now, you know. And then I showed them the complete opposite, which is Mike Tyson. If you look at Mike Tyson, who was an intense boxer he had the same look the mean intense look the entire way and so both are champions for their their sport but both are also different with how they approach their levels of focus and i think providing those visual examples is really important too because these kids are visual now right so i think that that's great and i have you know players same thing you ask them what do you need after a strikeout one will say tell me a joke i need to laugh one will say do not tell me it's okay because it's not and give me five seconds to breathe so having that dialogue like you mentioned between between players really helps develop the trust as well so coach ashley tell me a little bit more about your your degree and how you've been able to kind of mold you know, the, the education part that you've learned with your degree, with the things that you've learned from coach Bridget and, and then as kind of develop into your own coach. Yeah. So I, um, also give, I'm a private pitching coach as well. Um, and a lot of the things that I was doing before I had gone to school was just very like mechanical. Um, we would work on mechanics, we would work on your fastball, your curve, all that stuff. Right. Um, but in using my degree and what I've learned as a pitcher under coach Quimpo and what we continue, what I continue to learn um, at Ramapo as well um, are things that I now implement into my lesson. So instead of just doing mechanics every single time I see them, we're, we may do half mechanics and then we work on batters. We are in a three, two count, you know, what, what pitch are you throwing? Because something that I'm seeing a lot of now is that pitchers just don't take ownership of pitching. Um, I knew when I was on the mound, I knew what pitch I wanted to throw. And if me and my catcher were on the same page, then I knew that we were, we were good that day. Right. Um, if not, we had to have a conversation, but that was me taking ownership of my game. Um, they don't do that now. So they have 
wristbands. They're they're having every pitch called for them, every situation called. Um, so I think that's something that I want to change in my pitchers is allowing them to feel the autonomy of I'm in a three, two count. Like I'm feeling like I want to throw a screwball right now, but like my coach is telling me um, a, a curve or like a drop, right? Like why, why do you have to, um, why aren't you on the same page as your coach one and two, how do you get on the same page? Um, and allowing them to have the conversations too. So instead of just saying like, you're in a three, two count, uh, what pitch are you throwing? And they give me whatever pitch, we have a discussion of it. Why are you going to throw that pitch? Well, because I'm feeling really confident with it today and I need a strike, right? I know I can hit my spot with that pitch. Um, so things like that, we, we work on um, routines, making sure you're doing the same thing every, every time to create that routine, but knowing when it needs to adjust and when you need to actually hold yourself back maybe half a second or go a little bit quicker or even like figuring out what you need after you gave up a home run or a big, a big walk. Um, so I think combining both the counseling type of, of things that I learned in my degree um, and the things that I had already learned under coach Quimpo, it, it comes up with a really very nice way of holding my pitchers accountable now and kind of teaching them to take ownership of what they're doing. You know, that's the biggest thing is, is these kids are given so often just like a, a blueprint of what's going to happen that day. And they don't even have to think about it. And that's a problem when you get to the collegiate level. If that's where you want to play, it, it doesn't work like that. You need to have your voice. You need to have the confidence to throw what you want to throw. And if you're not on the same page, have the confidence to talk to your coach about why aren't we on the same page and how do we get on the same page? Because if you're not, it's not going to work. Um, and I think that's a good thing too, just going back to um, what coach Quimple was talking about with flashlight focus is if we have them define things, they're taking ownership of it. Like if they're saying that at, at a level three, that's for them in between games, but you see them in between games at a level four, again, you can hold them accountable, but they're the ones that said it. We're not the ones that are, are coming up with that blueprint for them. Um, and we do that pretty often, especially with this generation, because I feel like that's what they need. Yes, visual stuff, but also they, they need to learn to take ownership of what they're doing and have the confidence to do that as well. So. I'm really glad you brought that up because there's, it, it's twofold. And I, I see this question a lot. I have a lot of people ask me this question and I don't really understand why they do. Cause I have my own thoughts and theories on it, but they, I see the exact same thing in high school, the wristbands, the pitch call, Everyone stops and takes five minutes and looks at their wristband. And the question always comes back, who calls the pitches? So, I mean, it's very clear that there's a, that you have to understand there's a development part of that piece and allowing them to fail is okay. So, and I think what, what we're missing sometimes is we're so focused on the outcome, the strike, the ball, the win, the loss. We forget about the development of the player. And I, I think you said it perfectly, Ashley, like it's so true. They are like almost handed a schedule when they wake up in the morning and they're told what to do all the time. So they don't take ownership because I don't feel like they have any. So I think that that's just, that's a really good point that I, that I'm really glad you brought up. And I think a lot of the coaches that we talk to that are in college say these kids don't know how to compete. They don't understand how, because there's, because that that's one of the reasons why it's tied back. So I think that it's so important to just let your kids fail, but take the time to reflect and find out, well, what were you thinking and what did you throw and what was the result and how do we fix it? 
I think that too um, is so important to, we, I mean, Coach Quimpo, since I've known her, we've been practicing failure in practice regardless. She'll put you in a situation that she knows you're going to fail at so that you know, one, how it feels and two, how do I get out of that situation? So it's not just like, hey, let's just throw our kids in. And if they fail, they, they're on for themselves. No, like we've been in that situation before and they may have failed and they may fail in the game, but they've already been there and they know how to overcome it. Um, so again, that's that's part of taking ownership is like being okay with failure um, because then you can grow and get comfortable with it as well. I love it. That's like perfect. Like, so in, in establishing a purposeful practice really is what it comes down to, right? And I think I, I didn't learn that until... I started taking my master's degree 10 years into my coaching because my assistant or my, my head coach, co-head coach and I would come to practice the first few years. We'd be like, so what do you want to do? Well, we should do ground balls today and we should do some hitting. And, you know, some coaches have the same practice every single day. So I learned all about purposeful practice and that is a, in a very intentional piece of practice. So coach Quimpo, could you talk a little bit more maybe about an example where you do set them up for failure and how, you know, cause that it's, it's almost cruel, but you know, you got to do it. <laughs> And, and that's so funny that you say that, but it, it's so interesting. And it's, it, this mean, may sound so mean, but I actually like when they fail. Um, <laughs> and the reason why is because when I know that they're getting better, but two, it, it also exposes their character. It also exposes, like when you see them fail, you see them, their mini tantrums maybe that they're having, or maybe they're having a bad day and then it just elevates whatever their day is. And it goes immediately to their truth. It, it goes immediately to what can we help them fix and develop as a softball player, but also as a person, um, because what you do on the softball field is what you also do off the field as well, right? And how you respond to things. So um, it's it's so funny because I look back on Ashley's time and I remember we did an activity um, where she had to hit her spots. And I remember her hitting a spot so well, crushing the pitch. And I got so excited, but inside I was like, ball. And I made, so the other part about it was, the other part was that I made the team run for her. So I would put the players on the line and I would say, okay, you guys owe me a sprint. If she doesn't hit her spot, um, you guys have to run. And I said to myself, I don't care what she does. If she does it right, even if she does it great, I'm calling it a ball. And I remember her face at me. She was so pissed off at me. She was so angry because I made the team run for her and she thought that it was a great pitch, but what does it teach her? Right. And so I remember that day so clearly, and we still implement that till the, till this day. And just to add on to that, we actually went even further with it. Uh, so I'll just give you another example of failure, but we, we set them up for failure. Like I said, I, I feel that if we're not failing at practice, I say this to my team all the time, if you're not failing at practice, you're not getting better. And so um, we, we, have, we had this one day, um, uh, we had them running sprints for each, uh, each position. So you had the pitchers throwing, then you had the hitters hitting against um, Ashley, who was throwing literally about 35 feet and she was throwing it. So it was equal, equivalent to a 65 mile an hour pitch. Like it was hard to hit. Then we had, we, we have a defensive side, right? So this is all into one practice and we're tallying up the score, right? And I literally made them fail. And so our pitchers threw, I would say pitcher number one, you're throwing all right, that's one suicide. So I made them run like, and I didn't make them run it yet. And they kept failing and failing and failing. So I had a hitter. I said, hitter, 
hitter number two, you, you're up. And then they're pitching, the, Ashley's pitching against them. She, we'll, we'll call a different uh, pitch call. Maybe it'll be a, a two strike count. And now they've got to be able to go right into position of two strikes. Okay, now what's my approach at, at bat? Then you have the defensive side where we'll set up uh, 60 feet cones and we'll try to hit the ball past them. And their job is to, you know, try to keep the ball in front. If they, if they accomplish the task that takes plus one, uh, that takes away minus one sprint, right? So one day, oh my goodness, they were down to like 21 suicides. And I was like, oh my God, we can't do this. I was like, I cannot make, this is like now turning into a punishment. It's like not good. And so I said, I, I, I paused for a second. I said, how can I get this lower? They were just doing so poorly. And I paused and I said, double or nothing. Okay. I said, double or nothing. And I'm like, I'm praying. I'm like, praying, please. Like, you know, so this, uh, I said, double or nothing. Who wants it? So this time I chose the player that actually wanted that position. And she raised her hand. She said she wanted to hit. So she had to hit against um, Ashley. And I kid you not, that moment was truly a championship defined moment. The intensity of the players, how excited they were. You can feel their heart rate. Everybody's heart rate was up. Um, the physiological response response with the breathing, the whole team and the excitement in them. And while she's, this girl is up to bat, right? Going against Ashley, she fouls off the first pitch and the whole team, I, I kid you not, it was a championship moment. And um, I'm so glad, but she ended up crushing it in that moment. And I knew that her preseason, she did such a heck of a job in her preseason. I thought she was going to have a hell of a season in the season that we ended up losing this year, but um, she crushed it. And the whole team like huddled around her and jumped, you know, on top of her as if we just won that moment. And that moment was not just for her. It was for the team. It was for um everybody around them even the coaching staff we were so excited for that moment and thank god we were able to get it to zero because i swear i was not gonna have them run that much it was just the point of the pressure and the moment and the failures and then how you were going to establish the recovery from that so it was really it was a cool day really cool day that is a really cool story, but I've been in those exact same situations where deep down you're like, please, please make it. Cause I, do. because it's kind of like when I talk to my daughter and I give her one of those, like, if you don't do this, this is your punishment. You have to follow through. Yeah. So, so I love the story though, because the thing that came out of that was, was probably something like you said, that would have, that could have, would have changed your season. It could have brought them together in a different way but go back a little bit when they are struggling and working and they're just struggling and having one of those days, because we have those days, how do you guide them through that? So they don't just fall off the cliff and quit. Yeah. So um, there's so many different ways to, I guess, approach them. Right. So I remember last year we had a freshman who was not used to failing whatsoever. Every time she would go into the drill, uh, the station with, uh, Ashley. So we have stations that we set up and it, it's not just stations physically. It's also stations mentally. So um, we have a failure state. We call it the, it, it's basically our coaching staff. We call it the failure station, but it is with Ashley because she's throwing literally 35 feet away and really blowing it by them. And so, um, and if they, if they, the goal is that they have a quality at bat 
if they can stay in, in the at bat for a total of five or six pitches, regardless of how they end up in that at bat, that that's a successful at bat, right? So it's a quality at bat. So um, when we, when that is actually exposed, um, one of our freshmen last year, she just threw a tent, like a little temper tantrum on the, on the side. Um, and she was really upset. In addition, she had a, a tough day, but I didn't know that until I met with her after, right? So I'll meet with them after, and then we'll talk about some of the, the ways that they can recover. But we also um, talk in discussion, because we have also classroom discussions of how to handle those moments. So uh, reset buttons, actually taking, um, you know, taking a piece of dirt, taking dirt, and if we don't have dirt in the gym, but actually visually picking up that dirt and actually flushing it and turning the page. So we do talk a lot about failure recovery, just, um, but when we see something like that, we're able to share that because her teammates are seeing the same example out of that. So we're able to, um, we'll go in the next day and actually go into discussion. We also talk about um, just, and, and that's exactly what we do with like, Ashley, when I had her fail on purpose, I wanted to see how she was going to respond. And then based off of how she responds is how we will address it to the team and how we'll talk about it to the team and how sometimes the way you address uh, or the way uh, she responds to it. Now the players know what's a good response and what's not a good response. And so, um, but we'll, we'll use some examples and we'll talk, we'll talk it through and we'll talk about some things. We had uh, one player, she, um, she would take a rubber band. So we took a rubber band if she was like angry. So she would snap herself out of it. And so that was one way for her to turn the page. So, you know, it, it all depends on the player and how they handle failure. And in talking earlier about the day that we hold our teammates accountable, that's another one of the questions that we do ask is how do you handle when, when you just struck out, how do you want to be handled? Right. Or how do you, how would you handle that moment? And so now it allows us to understand how we can help them um, mentally recovery from, recover from what they need to do for themselves. Ash, I'm curious about that story that she shared about you. T tell me what you're thinking in that moment, because I know you remember. What were yeah. you thinking in that moment when she called a ball? Um, I believe this was the first time we had done. Is that the one that you're talking about? The first time? Because yeah. I got very used to yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So for me, like seeing someone call a ball when it was clearly over the plate and a strike, <laughs> like was a, was kind of like a shock to me. Right. So I'm like, how can that be a ball? But I was never a player to talk back to an umpire, to talk back to a coach. I would kind of just internalize it. So I do remember that day getting very overwhelmed and getting that feeling, you know, that nervousness feeling where you get it in like your fingertips and you can feel it in your toes and like all of that. So I remember definitely feeling that. And it made it even worse because I could run all day for myself. Self. Like if I did something wrong all day, like send me right when you have my teammates running for me, that makes it even worse for me. Then my, my, my nervousness and my overwhelmed feeling gets worse. So it really put me into like a fight or flight type of response. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really had to work at that. Like, I don't think I got great at that until maybe like my sophomore year, my, my freshman year was, um, definitely a learning experience because I had never been through it. So it was definitely something that I needed to work at. And whenever coach put me into that situation, I didn't like it, but I definitely appreciated it because we have a tough conference. Like every day is, is a battle in the NJAC. Um, so 
I was going into games and I knew that that's exactly how I was going to feel, right? Like it's one batter after the next, after the next, who is going to be fouling off pitches and, you know, bad umpires and taking strikes and all of that. That wasn't something that I was just getting in practice. I was getting it every single day in season. So um, I didn't necessarily understand it from the start, but I learned to understand it. And I, again, the, my first year playing, I was sent to the wolves. I was one of the only pitchers on our team. Um, so I didn't have days where like, I could have people come in for me. And that was basically the basis of my career. Like I didn't have anyone that could really come and and bail me out of many situations. I had to kind of do it my, myself. And that's where those practices, as much as they sucked and I didn't want to be doing them, they really shaped me as, as the player that I am and the coach that I am now too. Yeah. I think like we, um, you know, our routine, we, we work so much on routine. We let them fail. And then now we want to see how they're going to handle their routine from their body language to their breaths. So when, when uh, our pitchers that were failing that day, um, the day that we, that, that intense day, uh, we actually had them actually work on their body language, their posture and their breathing. And then the same goes with the hitters too. So when they failed, you would see them, you know, um, fail and then they wouldn't breathe. They just run down and back on the court. So instead it was, okay, take a breath and go back to routine. And so we actually have practices where they're just, we're, we're actually working on routine that day. So if they miss hit a pitch and then they hated it, they learn how to shake it off. So they actually implement that into our practices. So sometimes at practice, they're not just swinging, swinging, you know, getting a hundred swings in practice. I would rather them get 30 swings in practice than to have a hundred, you know, quantity swings. I'd rather that them get 20 quality swings and quality swings that include the routine and the mental side of, of practice of, of the games. And so that we're able to implement all of that into our practice because you are including the mental side of the game as well. So you add that on, it really is a thousand, you know, swings in a day if you think about it, but it's more quality when you're doing it that way. So. I think too, that the, again, going back to the ownership aspect of it, like it's so cool to see as a coaching standpoint now, how, how our players grow. Like we had a pitcher last year who didn't have a routine and we really worked on that with her. And I believe that day, actually, she, she really utilized her routine and it came in handy for her. Like she started walking up to the mound with a strut, with a swag and coming up and being like, yeah, like I got this, this is my team. Like I'm going to put you on my back. Right. Um, and to see her actually utilize it and, and working it working for her was one of the coolest things to see um, because that's her taking ownership. And, and a lot of what we talk about in terms of routine and, and reset buttons, it's all about what works for the, the athlete. So it's not something that you can just say, okay, so you're going to take dirt and throw it. If they don't buy into it, they're going to, they're not going to believe in it. So I think having those days where you really work on your routine or you work on your reset button when you're failing um, and seeing what works for you and what you buy into, those are so important because you can't do that in a game. You have to be practicing that from, from almost day one. Cause it does, it does take some, some effort to figure it out. <laughs> Definitely does. Absolutely. And I think the biggest key takeaway, I hope that the coaches that are listening to this you have to allow the space and time to practice it. And it has to be purposeful. Those are the two things, because I hear a lot of times coaches will say, I don't have time to practice it. 
<laughs> if you don't make time, it won't, it, it doesn't work, right? Number one, number two, and the physical skills don't mean anything if they can't actually achieve them in, in a game, as you know, I, you know, all-star cage hitters, we all have seen those, right? So it's like one of those things where it's just really, really important to give them the time and space, but be purposeful. And you have shared some amazing examples, like that's, it's perfect. So last question, we'll wrap up for both of you. Um, what piece of advice would you give a coach who is trying to just start this, where would you have them start? Um, wow. So uh, what do you mean start, start this? The, if they the were going to, yeah, it's a good question. Sorry. If they were going to start working on implementing one thing in practice instead, because what we don't want is to have them try all 50 things and it doesn't work and quit. So if they were to do one thing to start to try to implement something in the mental part of the game into practice, what would your advice be? Uh, um, I would say just be able to take, um, your failures. So, um, have them be okay with learning how to fail in practice every day. Um, and I, I say this all the time to my team, but if you're, we're not getting better if we're not failing today. So I would say, put them in a position to fail and then address that and address how they can recover from that. Um, every day, if you can just put them in a position to fail and whether they like it or not, that's an uncomfortable situation. And that's the best thing you can do for a player is to get them out of their comfort zone. So I would say every day, just put, put in one of your skills, your, your plans for the day, failure, and then just kind of cover what that would look like if, if, if there's anything. Yeah. And so I think it kind of goes off of what coach Quimple was just saying, but if you don't know where to start, look at where you were as a player, like what, what would you have needed to hear in a certain moment? What would you have wished that you could do differently and start from there? And, and if failure is the, the word of the day or what you want to start working on, then think about how you failed. Was it productive or unproductive? Did it help your performance or hurt your performance? And in what ways can you draw from your own experiences? Because not everyone is, is privileged enough to go and get a degree in, in this stuff. And I understand that. And it's, it's hard when you don't know where to start. But I think one of the biggest things is you can always draw off of your experiences. And that doesn't mean make it about you. That just means tailoring it towards your team um, and figuring out what ways they can use where you feel, feel like you, you were lacking or you could have used something else. And that is a mic drop wrap on today's episode. Thank you again for Coach Gwimpo and Coach Ober and Steeper for spending their time with us. Again, if you're as pumped as I am about challenging your girls through failure the way they did and teaching them how to compete, check out mentalsweetspot.com slash fail forward to grab 26 activities and drills that you can put into your practice ASAP. All right, that's it for today. As usual, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out. And until next time, have a good one.